Well, good morning. So four weeks from today is our service of Believer's Baptism. And if you are interested in being baptized or you just want to have a conversation about being baptized, uh, you can please let us know as soon as possible by the 26th of this month, actually. Uh, you can sign up through the Church Center app, or you can just take the connection card in front of you and at the bottom just write baptism, check the box, give us your information, and we will be in touch with you uh, this week. But thank you for that. Well, today we return to our sermon series from the book of Acts, and I'm going to be reading and then teaching from Acts 19, verses 1 through 20. Turn there with me if you have a scripture, the scriptures there with you. Acts 19, verses 1 through 20. And please stand with me as I read, read this passage. <clears throat> Luke writes this beginning in Acts 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? He said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. 
and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is God's word. Please be seated. That's quite a passage, isn't it? There's a lot happening there. I want to begin with a, a question. It's not a trick question, it's an honest question. Do you want to experience the Holy Spirit? Do you want to experience the Holy Spirit? And I have in mind everything the Scripture says about what we should experience of the Holy Spirit. Do you want to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit? Do you want the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin and then lead you in the paths of righteousness? Do you want the gifts of the Spirit? Do you want to exhibit the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Do you want the Holy Spirit to illuminate the Scripture so that you understand it and soak it in? Do you want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to represent Jesus everywhere that you go? Do you want to experience everything the Holy Spirit has for you? Honestly, I truly hope that you do because we cannot begin to live the life that God wants us to live on our own. Uh, Many of us have tried it with disastrous results, but we don't have the power, we don't have the resolve, we don't have the wisdom that we need to, to pull off a life like Jesus wants us to live. Therefore, we need to get to the place where he, we have this deep longing to experience the Holy Spirit as fully as possible. And if you get to that place, now the question becomes, so what needs to be true of me if I want to experience the Holy Spirit? What do I need to be like? What needs to be true of me if I want to experience the Holy Spirit? That is the question that today's passage answers. As we, as we read, there are these two groups of people. They were very different from one another, but they both had a deficiency when it came to their understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and, and how to experience Him. And their, their understanding, their, different, uh, their deficiencies were very different, but they both needed to understand the same thing, namely that to experience the Holy Spirit, we must be rightly related to the Lord Jesus. If we want to experience the Holy Spirit, we have to be rightly related to the Lord Jesus. And this makes total sense in light of what Jesus said in in, uh, John 16, 14. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will glorify me. He will show people just how glorious I am. Therefore, it makes total sense that if we want to experience the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit's deepest commitment is to show how glorious Jesus is, then we need to be rightly related to Jesus to experience the Holy Spirit in all his fullness. And so each event gives us a little different perspective. The first event speaks of our conversion. The second event speaks of our ongoing experience with the Holy Spirit. And so first, in verses 1 through 7, these verses show that we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit at conversion when we believe in Jesus. That's our our initial uh, indwelling with the Holy Spirit. Acts 19 takes place in the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Uh, It's estimated there were about 200,000 people living in Ephesus. 
And uh, Ephesus was the place where Paul spent more time than any other city, any other uh, place where they had planted a church, Paul and his team. We pick up the narrative in verse 1 of Acts 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, we were introduced to Apollos in the previous chapter, while he was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and he came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. And in the book of Acts, when you, you see the word disciple, it's referring everywhere to a disciple of Jesus, and I think we need to understand that here. These were, these were people who professed to be followers, uh, disciples of Jesus. But there was something about them that was deficient or off because Paul quizzes them very specifically about their experience with the Holy Spirit. It might have been something they said. It might have been something they did. But here's how the conversation went. Paul said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And they're probably not saying there that they didn't even know that, that the Holy Spirit existed. It was probably the case that they hadn't heard that the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon people who believed in Jesus. Then verse 3, and Paul said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And when they said that, now it made sense. And Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. And so he said, you need to understand that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was preparatory for the Messiah. Jesus, Paul, uh, John had told people, I am baptizing you. You need to turn from your sin, but there's one who's coming after me. I'm not even fit to untie his sandals. There's one coming up after me. He's not going to just baptize you in water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Believe in him. And so Paul had found these disciples in Ephesus who had repented, but they hadn't yet believed in Jesus. And so this is a unique thing. We don't run across that, right? You don't run across people who say, well, I was baptized with John's baptism. No, that, that's not the case in, in our day. But that, that was the case for them. And so, but since they weren't rightly related to Jesus, they had not experienced the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 5, we read, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, you may notice that it's not said explicitly, and they believed in Jesus, and then they were baptized. Well, when you read through the book of Acts, it's a, it's a historical account, and so the, 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 uh, the description of conversion varies, but there are these three things that are associated with conversion in the book of Acts. Repentance, faith, and baptism. Repentance means turning from sin and turning back to God. Faith means trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died for my sin and rose on the third day. And then baptism is the the, the public declaration that you've believed in Jesus, that you are now a disciple of Jesus. But it's pretty rare when all three of those are mentioned 
But when one or two of those are mentioned, the other two or the other one is implied. And so here when we're told that they repented and they were baptized, it's implied that they also believed. Now note that these disciples were baptized in the name of Jesus. And we're going to see this phrase two other times in verses 13 and verses 17, that, that expression the, the name of the Lord Jesus is one of the things that ties these two accounts together. But the name of Jesus signifies everything Jesus is and everything he does. And so when you're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, you're making this comprehensive declaration. I believe in everything that's true about Jesus, and I believe in everything that he does. When we have this baptism on October 15th, uh, as I said on the video, there, people are not declaring, I've arrived or I've attained a certain level of maturity, but they are declaring, by God's grace, with his help, it is my desire, because I believe in him and he's, if he's forgiven my sins, it is my desire to walk with him throughout this life, no matter what the cost. And so they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we see in verse 6 that these disciples experienced something very similar to what the original disciples of Jesus experienced on the day of Pentecost. <clears throat> verse 6, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Another observation about the book of Acts, there, there's not a set order or a formula for a person's experience with the Holy Spirit at their conversion. And so here, the Holy Spirit came upon them after they were baptized. On the day of Pentecost, they, were, they received the Holy Spirit before they were baptized, both here and at on the day of Pentecost, one of the tangible evidences that they had received the Holy Spirit was that they began speaking in tongues. And we're told in Acts 2 that in that situation anyway, uh, they were speaking known human languages that they had not learned. Okay, so they had this supernatural ability to speak a human language that they had never learned. And so that happens on occasion in the book of Acts. But sometimes the gift of tongues isn't mentioned, actually in most conversion accounts. And so there's a variety of manifestations when people are converted and have this indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But the significant thing for us to note is that it's always the case that we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit at conversion when we believe in Jesus. And so, if you want to experience the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, your response needs to be one of faith. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And like the disciples at, at Ephesus, you don't only need to repent, you also need to believe that Jesus died for your sins and was raised on the third day. And when you believe in Jesus, what he has done for you, now you are rightly related to him. And now you receive this indwelling Holy Spirit permanently in your life. And so that's 
our initiation into the body of Christ. And, and I want to say this carefully, but I do want to say it because uh, there is a situation analogous to those disciples of John in Ephesus. It is possible for a person to be raised in the church and to hear the words about Jesus. And at some time in your life, you realized, I want to turn from my sin and I want to live a moral life. But if you, have, if you are trying to avoid sin, and you are trying to live a, a moral life, but you have no peace with God, and you don't have this assurance that your sin has been wiped away, and this assurance that you will not experience the wrath of God on the final day. It may be, it may be, that you have never actually put your faith in Jesus alone for salvation. Now, if you lack peace with God and assurance of salvation, there may be other things at play. For example, there may be habitual sin in your life that is keeping you from having peace and experiencing this assurance. But it may be that you've never trusted in Christ in the first place. And so if that's your situation, don't, don't miss this, this invitation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's what Paul told the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. The second event shows that we experience the fullness of the Spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit as we submit to the Lord Jesus. When I speak of the, the fullness, I'm speaking again of everything that the Spirit wants us, wants to do in our, in our lives as described in Scripture. Victory over the forces of darkness, the power to bear witness for Jesus, the conviction of sin, the illumination of the Scriptures. Verses 8 through 10 describe how Paul continued his normal pattern. He went to Ephesus. He went to the Jews first. He taught in the synagogue. And when they became increasingly hostile, he turned away from them. And he went to this venue. It's called the Hall of Tyrannus. And I see that name. I'm like, who names their baby that, right? I mean, who, what, what was going on there? And, uh, but he went to this hall, and he taught there. For two years, he went to the Gentiles, persuading, teaching them. Verse 10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so Paul had this, this scope and this reach of influence. Many, many people heard the word of the Lord. And then in verses 11 and 12, Luke describes how God was doing unusual. He says, extraordinary miracles through Paul. And Luke is rather nuanced in the way he says this. He says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And so he makes clear Paul wasn't doing these miracles, okay? God was doing these miracles through Paul. And he says they're not ordinary miracles. We think all, we don't tend to think that some miracles are ordinary, but these were extraordinary miracles that God was doing. Specifically, we read in verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin, and those were probably garments that Paul uh, used in his tent-making business. He would wipe the sweat with the handkerchief, and the apron would protect his clothing and, and his body. 
Even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So again, this is extraordinary. This is not ordinary. This is not normative. He's not implying that if you're holy enough, that if something touches your skin, it can be carried and it, can, it will heal and deliver people. And so it's not normative. At the same time, this is not without precedent, right? Does this remind you of anything that happened in Jesus' ministry? We have recorded in Luke 8, that a woman touched the hem of Jesus' robe and she was healed. We have recorded in Acts 5.15 that, that people laid the sick in the street so that at least Peter's shadow might fall upon them with the implication that they were healed, that they were delivered. And so God has a right to do anything he wants even today, even extraordinary things. But if Luke hadn't told us that God were doing these miracles, we might think that this was a display of magic, which by definition involves invoking or manifesting supernatural powers through incantations or rituals, that type of thing. And Luke, after this account, he, he makes clear that there was, a, there was a group of people, a group of men, they were the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva, what Paul, what is happening through Paul got their, intent, their attention and they tried to imitate him in certain ways. And they didn't realize that the reason God worked through Paul the way he did was because Paul was rightly related to Jesus. But this is what we read in verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, though they, they, there was a traveling minister, this is their, uh, their vocation, they earn their living by traveling around casting out evil spirits or trying to. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. There's the term again, the name of the Lord Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaimed. And so this is basically a magic incantation, okay? They didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't proclaim Jesus. They said, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, okay? And so they didn't understand that they needed to be rightly related to Jesus to speak his name with the power in the way that Paul did. Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva, were doing this. So this is the family business. It was likely very lucrative. And as you probably know, I hope you know, Satan is a liar, okay? That's his bread and butter. That's his, his career is lying. That's what he does. However, <clears throat> sometimes his assistants, evil spirits, uh, demons, speak the truth in very lucid ways without mincing words. And that's certainly the case here. <clears throat> Verse 15, But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, 
so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So these evil spirits weren't in the least bit intimidated by somebody who had a secondhand knowledge of Jesus. And so by contrast, back in Acts 16, Paul had told the evil spirit residing in a servant girl, Paul said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it obeyed them. Paul had power when he spoke in the name of Jesus because he was rightly related to Jesus. He exhibited the power of the Holy Spirit. But when the sons of Siva tried to appropriate the name of Jesus as an incantation, they ended up naked and wounded. And Luke mentions two specific responses as word of this incident got around. And you can imagine people telling this this story about what these, these seven sons of Siva tried to do and how they ended up being mauled. And uh, the, the word got out. And both of these responses we're going to talk about involve people becoming rightly related to Jesus and therefore experiencing the Holy Spirit. The first response was the fear of the Lord the fear of the Lord. Luke tells us that when people heard what had happened, this this fear fell upon them all, verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And so Luke isn't saying that everybody who heard about this experience came to actual faith in Christ but rather there was this widespread realization. You ready for this? This widespread realization that Jesus and Paul were known and feared in the unseen spiritual realm. This demon actually said, we know Jesus, we recognize Paul, and that got their attention, okay? This this fear of the Lord came upon everybody who heard this. James 2.19 tells us that the demons believe and tremble. It's not that they have faith in God, but they believe in the existence of God, and they are terrified. But the, the seven sons of Siva, yeah, no, no, no respect there whatsoever. They don't actually know Jesus. And so, When this became known, this fear came upon them and the name of Jesus was extolled. His reputation grew and swelled among the people. Now, those who didn't know Jesus were likely thinking, do I really want to be at odds with Jesus who has that type of power, that type of recognition? And those who did know Jesus were likely thinking, is there anything in my life analogous to the presumption of these seven sons of Siva? Is there anything in my life that is not submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ? And that leads to the second response, which I'm describing as costly repentance. Costly repentance. Proverbs 16.6 says, By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil, Proverbs 16, 6. When you have the fear of the Lord, you recognize the Lord for who he is. It prompts you to turn away from evil. Luke tells us in verse 17 that many of those who were genuine believers, 
they continued practicing the magic arts along with their their Christianity. We don't know how long this had been going on, but there was something incompatible. Their part of the old way of life had, had hung on, and they needed to turn from it. And this fear of the Lord prompted them from tur- to turn from their sin in a very decisive and costly way. Verse 18, also many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And so they burned these books. They didn't sell them at a discount to their friends and family. They said, we are done. We, we don't want to recoup our losses. We're just done with this. And these, these books likely contain magic rituals and incantations and such. And Luke records the price, the estimated price, 50,000 pieces of silver. And if these were silver coins were uh, denarii, then that's a, what a, an average laborer would make for a day's worth of work. And so if they didn't, never took a day off, somebody would, it would take 137 years to earn that much money. And so this would be millions of dollars. And so this was costly repentance on behalf of these believers. It was akin to metaphorically cutting off your right hand if it causes you to stumble, Matthew 5.30. Read in verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This word of the Lord is this, this message about Jesus. And Luke is telling us, that the success of the gospel flowed from the fear of the Lord and the costly repentance of believers. As they submitted to the lordship of Jesus, they experienced the fullness of the Spirit, and their witness had a powerful impact on others. And the same thing is true of us. We experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit as we submit to the Lord Jesus. And as we experience the fullness of the Spirit, our witness is more credible. It's more compelling to others. There is a power about our lives. We're not merely speaking words. We're actually bearing witness to the power of Jesus himself. And so by way of application, I want to ask you to do something rather simple here and now and something that is probably more complex a bit later as you go from this place. And so here and now, first, in response to this passage, can you identify anything in your life analogous to these believers in Ephesus who still practiced the magic arts? Can you identify anything in your life that that you just know? You just know it's not compatible with your profession that Jesus is Lord. Anything incompatible with the Lordship of Christ. And that's rather simple for most of us. Like immediately, yes, obviously. But if you need help, uh, we have help in the Scripture. I don't know if you ever noticed these lists that Paul wrote and uh, they're, they're really very helpful because we tend, to, we tend to rank these are the really bad sins and these, the ones I commit, they're really not that bad. But when you read these lists, there's just no place to hide. I mean, Paul, they're all mixed together here. And so here's one from Galatians 5. 
Do you practice any of these deeds or works of the flesh? Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Here they are. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. That's what we saw in Acts 19. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, whoa, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Can you identify any deed or work of the flesh in your life? That, that's the place to start identifying. Here's something that I need to turn from. Here's something that is keeping me from experiencing the fullness of the Spirit in my life. And so that's relatively simple. What comes next might be more complex. And my encouragement to you, my plead with you, as I plead with myself here, is in days and weeks ahead, invite the Holy Spirit to show you what does the fear of the Lord prompt me to do? If I'm relating to God, Jesus, as he really is, what does costly repentance look like? What does it look like for me to turn from this sin in a very decisive way? If I'm done playing with this sin, what does it look like in my life? When people came to John the Baptist, they say, what must we do? He was very specific what repentance looks like. And I would encourage you, don't be afraid of specific, costly repentance. This is not God's punishment for you. No, it's the kindness of God, the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Repentance is a gift. It's not a punishment. By repentance, we're able to turn. By the power of the Spirit, we're able to turn from our sins. And now we can experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and God will allow us to, to experience everything the Spirit has for us. And as always, it's for our good, but ultimately for His glory. When people see this in our lives, they say, praise God who does this in the life of ordinary people. And the reputation of Jesus grows and swells. The word of the Lord will prevail mightily. Heavenly Father, this is, this is your will for us. God, we thank you for this account as these wild experiences. And God, these things that, that we might not have even known were possible. But God, we believe that you uh, record these things for our edification, for our instruction, and it's profitable. And so, Father, teach us the fear of the Lord. May we choose the fear of the Lord. God, we pray that we would each turn to you in faith, believing in Jesus and you giving us the Holy Spirit. And God, may we walk in him. And God, as we go from this place today and this week and weeks to come, would you show us, this, show us the things in our lives that are incompatible with the Lordship of Jesus? And God, give us a will to turn from these things. We pray, God, we might have fruitful conversations with one another as we confess our sins one to another, that we would speak the truth to one another in love, that you might lead us into paths of freedom, paths of righteousness. And God, it's for your name's sake. We want the name of the Lord Jesus to be exalted here in our, in our town, in this area. And so we pray these things in faith with anticipation. In Jesus' name, amen.